Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back for another edition of Revolution Recap. Coming to you after the Revolution had a two-game week, uh, which started both games at home, which started against Philadelphia on Wednesday. Um, in that game, the Revolution drew 1-1, taking a lead through Brandon Bay in the 31st minute, uh, but then conceding a late goal uh, in the 84th minute to Philadelphia to end up just settling for a draw on that one. Um, and then on Saturday, the roles turned a bit where the Revolution fell behind early in this game um, in the 25th minute, only to come back on a goal from Antonio De La Mea, his first of the season, um, and a rare start for him, too, since um, Bruce Arena has taken over uh, in the 51st minute, tied the game up, and then Teal Bunbury in stoppage time uh, put the game away for the Revolution, winning it 2-1. So the Revolution come away uh, from this week with four points. Uh, Jake Katniss joins me today. And Jake, you know, the, the one question that you keep asking people, and I think you uh, sent it into the Revolution Recap Twitter account, uh, are the New England Revolution actually good at soccer? I'm going to let you answer that one. You know what? This this is probably going to answer this question in a, in a full like question and answer preview with our, our wonderful friends um, at the Burgundy Wave on, on SB Nation. Um. Because the next game New England plays is against the Colorado Rapids, who are on a seven-game unbeaten streak, while New England's on a six-game unbeaten streak, and both of us have sacked our managers within that time frame to start these wonderful streaks. I would like to think the answer of the New England Revolution, are they good at soccer? I don't know if they're good, but at least I know, at the very least, they're not bad anymore. And and under Brad Friedel uh, and Anthony Hudson, uh, these teams were bad. And now that you have gotten rid of the anchor weighing you down, you can actually see like, okay, these rosters, maybe we're not playoff teams. Maybe we're not going to get to the conference semifinals or what have you in the playoffs. But at the very least, we know we don't completely suck. You know, you bring up the Colorado Rapids. And if you had told me that Connor Casey was going to turn that team around, (laughs) I don't want to digress too far off the path. But I don't know who saw that one coming, especially with you know all the stories I heard about, like how little film Connor Casey watched and how like I think there were stories out there. I didn't like watching soccer and things like that. I I don't know about you, but I did not see that one coming. (laughs) Listen, somehow I think because Connor Casey is kind of sort of an MLS legend of sorts. And in particular, a Rapids legend. Somehow, Connor Casey, as a player's coach, with that locker room and, and Kai Kamara and some of the characters that are up there in, in Colorado, I think somehow it just works. Um, we've also noticed Colorado's had no problem scoring goals this year. Like, Kai Kamara's scoring goals. The problem is the defense has just been giving up, like, three goals every time. Now that the defense isn't giving up three goals or four goals every game, Colorado looks like a competent soccer team. We actually sort of thought they were. Um, they were doing the hard part of scoring the goals. They just needed to balance it out with just a just getting like one or two key stops a game, because both of those stops were usually turning into goals for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's crazy what they've done over there, and it makes the uh, the upcoming game on July fourth pretty exciting one to look forward to. Um, always a packed house in July 4th in Colorado. And I think if you'd asked us a couple months ago, uh, that would be one of those games you circle on the schedule is who the heck wants to watch that. Um, but, but that has certainly changed recently. Um, but going back to the revolution, uh, there are two games this week. What, what was your main takeaway, particularly from, from last night's comeback victory by the revolution? You know, I, this is something that we complained a lot for many years. This even goes back to, to Jay heaps of having good impact off the bench. We used to always sort of think the New England Revolution, at the very least, we have a lot of very good players. We might have a lot of great players. We can get to that part later. I think Carlos Gill is bordering on the great part now. No one would know this, but except New England. 
Um, but you never see a coherent plan or setup or style related to how the subs come in, what time they come in, etc., etc. Well, Bruce Arena decides, I'm going to stash Teal Bunbury and Christian Pena on the bench and kind of bring them in around the hour mark. And um, yeah, whatever that idea was, boy, that worked out really well. Yeah, and they got away with a lot of rotation in this game, too, um, that allowed them to do that. I think Bruce Arena mentioned after the last game that they're going to make changes. And I think there were, were six lineup changes. Um, one of them probably doesn't count because it was Matt Turner coming back in from suspension, but the other five were obviously for rotation purposes. Um, Fagundes got back in the lineup. Uh, Dewan Jones was back at left back. De La Maya, as I mentioned earlier, made a, a rare start in this one. Um, but yeah, I know it was, it was impressive what they did with the substitutions in this game. Um, I think a lot of the complaints this season, well, one of the complaints this season of many about uh, Brad Friedel was his weird choices with substitutions. Um, but, uh, Bruce Arena in this one was, was quick to pull the trigger even after the revolution tied it up on with De La Maya to, to get more offensive, bringing on Bunbury and Pania. Um, but you know, what were your thoughts on the guys that actually did start that kind of needed those subs to, to spark the team to life with, uh, you know, Fagundes going 56 minutes and Rennick's going 60 minutes before getting subbed off. Um, you know, Rennick's in particular kind of disappointed. There wasn't a whole lot of the strikers getting the ball, but Rennick's in particular seemed like he was someone who was struggling to sort of enter the game in, in any meaningful way. And I think him coming off in particular for Pania was a game changer. Not that Rennick's did anything bad. It's just... In a diamond formation, which is something I don't love New England doing, I feel like they're almost wasting a striker because they just don't get the ball that forward into the middle that often. So it feels strange to sort of divide the touches between two strikers that aren't going to get that many touches anyway. Um, so that when you have Pania and Bunbury come on and maybe the formation tweaks a little bit, now everything opens up. Now Pania on fresh legs is creating space. Teal up front is now, as he usually does, crashing the back post and causing trouble because, let's face it, Teal's really good at doing all those things. And that's why sometimes bringing Teal off the bench is sometimes awesome because now you have someone with that experience and with that level of skill who can play two ways, mostly as an attacker, mostly as a defender. Um, I think Teal Bunbury is a box-to-box sub. To hold a lead is perfectly acceptable. I've been saying this for a while now. Um but yeah, just it, it just seemed like this was something where you know you actually had a game change on the fact that you got a goal right before you made the sub, you bring on the subs, now you're dominating the game, and it's just a matter of time as to when the second goal happens. Maybe you're not expecting it to be as dramatic as a stoppage time winner, but you were you could see the buildup to New England uh, working their way towards taking that lead. Yeah, and you, you mentioned Renix, and I think one of the plays early on where he, that one shot that he had um, was a fantastic setup by Carly's heel to kind of play the ball over the back line, and Renix was in a good position where he you know got behind his defender um, and tried to volley it. It was, it was a tough shot, to be fair, but he sent it well high in the net, um, and that's one, you know, as he gets... You know, he's still only 20 years old. As he gets older, you'd hope to see him do a little bit better with that chance. Uh, but, you know, I, I agree. I don't think it was the, the best showing from Renix, but it was good that the Revolution, you know, managed to get him 60 minutes and get him a start. Um, and the other thing that didn't do him any favors was I don't think he connected very well with Caicedo, and that was more Caicedo's fault. Um, in particular, there was that chance early that, you know, we were talking about earlier where um, Renix was making a run into the box and was open, and, and Caicedo had really what should have been an easy pass to Renix that he just completely botched. Um, and I think it went out for, for a goal kick. Uh, so, you know, there were some disappointing moments between the, the two of them, and I don't think they particularly combined very well up top um, until you know some of those substitutions were made. 
Right. And I, I think that's sort of the other issue for, for New England is we're, we're not really a team that's ever really used two strikers. So as far as building a partnership, it, it's usually we talk about the partnership of, of the midfield, not so much the partnership in attack. And and this is something that Bruce Arena is, I think one of his biggest goals is finding that balance, whether that balance is another striker in, in the summer window or finding a balance of, you know, do we use you know, Buchanan and Caicedo, is it uh, Bunbury and Caicedo? And then someone comes in off the bench, like finding whatever the balance is and also not making it predictable. I think, you know, being able to withhold, you know, Pania and Bunbury is pretty devastating, you know, options off the bench. You know, I don't necessarily think that Diego is a great person to come off the bench, um, but maybe there's days where you're going to want him, you know, on reserve for a certain matchup. And I think that you're going to see arena do that more sort of tweaking week to week. You know, I want to try to attack down this side. I want to overload this combination on that flank and, and little things like that. And I think you're going to see a lot of results like, like this, where, you know, maybe it's not a great game all around. Uh, maybe the subs don't affect the game. Maybe, maybe they actually change the game for the better. Um, but you're going to see a lot of tinkering, I think, in the interim. Um, and if you're going to have results like this, I think that's perfectly way to close out the rest of the year. You don't need, you don't really need to get results um, if you're New England. Certainly, it helps to try and claw your way back into the playoff rates. But I'm still not sure that should be a goal for New England this year. Yeah, and, and I'm going to switch sides to my takeaway, which which is more on the defensive end, um, and perhaps a bit more negative, given the Revolution came out of this week with, with four points, so it was overall a, a good week for them. Um, the only thing I'll point out there is, is something that Brad Feldman pointed out during the broadcast, and that's Houston in particular. Uh, without Ellis in their lineup is you know a terrible team. They've lost eight straight games after this one without Ellis in their lineup, so um, I think with that in mind, this was kind of a must-win for the Revolution against Houston if they were to kind of maintain their chances of making the playoffs. Um, but, you know, again, with that in mind, Houston's not a team that's very good offensively when they're missing Ellis. Um, so I don't know how much credit you can give to the defense for, you know, holding them to one goal. And same with, with Philadelphia, who was missing several players um, on Wednesday. I think the, the defensive results so far have been better than the defensive talent. Um, and, you know, we talked about a bit about it before we started recording. Um, but, you know, one combination that hasn't impressed me um, that I think the revolution need to figure out is that right center back, right back combination. I think Brandon by just hasn't been good enough these past two games. Um, you know, a lot of that's masked by the fact he scored uh, the revolution's only goal on, on Wednesday. Um, but in this game, there were so many times where Kyoto just got the better of him. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of those times Brandon by was actually in a good position um, and just got caught flat footed or didn't react quickly enough. He actually had a few steps on Kyoto on, there was a chance in I think the 57th minute um, that Kyoto almost scored on and perhaps should have scored on uh, or, Brandon by was about three yards closer to the revolution goal than Kyoto was. Um, you know, the, there was a long pass from Houston. Andrew Frowell misplayed it. Uh, at this point, Brandon by didn't start to run backwards. Kyoto did. He got past Brandon by instantly. Uh, Brandon by was then playing catch up. Um, and that type of play just happens too often. And then to top it off, the fact that Brandon by, you know, on a, a night where the revolution passed pretty well, Brandon by passed at 46.2%, um, mm-hmm. which was uh, you know, down from 62.5% on Wednesday, which also wasn't very good. Um, you know, there's a lot of things I like about Brandon By, and I think he can add a lot to the attack, and I think he's looked better in the times where he's played midfield. Um, but I just don't think he can be your everyday right back in this league, and I don't think that him and Farrell cover for each other particularly well when when Farrell's the right center back and, and Brandon By is at, at right back. Um, and it didn't get 
completely exposed in the score sheet these past two games. Um, but I think that's something when the Revolution face teams that are at full strength and have higher powered offense, um, that's yeah. going to come back to bite them. Yeah, you know, again, it, we, we have to remember that, you know, this was a game which Jaleel Inababa was available off the bench and he came in for a, for a token one-minute appearance. Um, I forget who he subbed off for uh, in the end, but... Uh, it was Carlos Hill, actually. It was Carlos Gilly, yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, the, uh, something like that is fine. Like, if Jaleel Inababa, like, Jaleel Inababa should not be starting 20-whatever games a year for, for New England. Um, he, he's a great spot starter. He's a great substitute. I, I love Jaleel Inababa. I love it when he blocks a shot and celebrates, even when the play is going on. Like, uh, you probably shouldn't do that, but I don't care. Um, I love that stuff. But if you're going to still have Michael Mancien unavailable on the roster or out injured or whatever the issue is, and you're still needing to play Andrew Farrell at at center back uh, at at the halfway point of the year, uh, if center back is not your first priority when the transfer window opens, then I don't know what is. Um, because you know, you might've solved the left back spot accidentally with, with the Juan Jones, uh, jumping into there really, really well. Um, the right side of your line is, is killing you because you've got two guys playing out of position and that's a problem. Um, you know, I know, uh, uh, blanking now, a uh, daily man came in his first start in, I think two months and he gets a goal. That's great for him. A lovely story about uh, his uncle who passed away, um, during the week, uh, and, and the goal being dedicated to him. And, um, I still think. De La May is one of the best passers and distributors out of that back line. And it's not even close compared to what you're looking at with, with two rookie rookie type fullbacks and Andrew Farrell, another fullback playing at center back. And uh, I just feel like the Rebs back line is still just unbalanced and, and we need to get Andrew Farrell uh, quickly over to, to the right side. I just, he's just a far better option at that position than, than Brandon by is um, both on, on both sides of the ball. I, we can, we can debate whether or not positional you know, I'm sure Andrew Farrell makes very similar mistakes, um, but he also recognizes them, I think, a lot faster. And and he's been a defender a lot longer than than uh, Brandon Bay has. And and there are just games like like this week where you go, you know, Brandon Bay is certainly a solid option, but he cannot be a consistent starter if he's going to have uh, games routinely like that. Yeah, I, I've honestly been more impressed with Brandon Bay the few times we've seen him in midfield than I have at right mm-hmm. back. I don't think he is, yeah. you know, as a depth piece. Um, you know, I don't have a problem with with seeing him get minutes as a depth piece, but I think he, if, you know, if he's your everyday right back, you're in trouble. And I also think there's there's no way you can convince me that you know, for as much effort as Andrew Farrell puts in, you know, as as much credit as he deserves for filling that center back, that he is a better center back than De La Maya, particularly in, in Bruce Arena's system. Um, you know, I've said on this show before, I think De La Maya is not the best emergency defender. Um, and you know, under Brad Friedel, that was something that your center backs had to do a lot. Um, Andy Baba, obviously, a very good emergency defender. Farrell, you know. If, if only for his physicality and his ability to, to track back a, a very yeah. good emergency defender. Um, I think De La Mayo, when you're actually playing soccer um, and trying to keep possession and trying to you know generate offense and not just not playing on the back foot and turn up and turnovers and errors and trying to recover, um, I think he's probably the best center back in this roster. Um, and again, you, you can't convince me that Andrew Farrell is a better center back than De La Mayo. And you also can't convince me that Brandon Bay is a better right back than Andrew Farrell. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, with De La Mayo regaining fitness, um, I, I, I'm hopeful that we might see more of him at center back and, and more of Farrell at right back and more of Brandon Bay as a you know good option off the bench when you need some offense or some sort of spark. Yeah, I would like to see it. Like, I, again, there, there's still the impending, we assume, summer additions and, and where those positions might be. I think center back would have to be one. Um, I think at this point, it, you don't maybe, you can maybe go through the rest of the year with Jones at, 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 at left back. I, I think... 
there's there's nothing wrong with saying he's earned a shot to try and do that for the rest of the year and, and, you know, sort of determine whether or not he's going to be an option as a starter next year, or maybe he's just an option uh, off the bench and he can be sort of that utility um, sort of just, you know, left-sided player as it were. You need a midfielder. Ah, you got your main, you got, you know, Dewan Jones, you need a left back. Ah, you got Dewan Jones sitting on the bench. He's perfectly fine. Um, you know, I still think they need another holding midfielder. I, I still think there's a, a combination of, you know, Luis Caicedo or Scotty Caldwell and someone else that can get this team over the top. Um, who that player might be, I don't know. But I, I still think that that uh, the standard 4-2-3-1 the Revolution have been using is still the best way for their their team to set up and, and build through the middle with, with Gil and, and, and even Caicedo. I think Caicedo was great yesterday in sort of a lone holding role. Um, got fouled a whole ton of times, if I remember, too. So... Uh, you know, this is sort of just the beginning of the, the, the like the tinkering process that I think uh, Arena is going to have the next uh, couple of months. Yeah, agreed. And I think the way they started this game, you know, wasn't the best. And Arena learned from that and he's had time to kind of, you know, as I mentioned, he rotated the squad a bit. And I think it didn't work out so much in the first half, but you know, found a way to change it in the second half. Um, the defense to me, as you, as you mentioned, is it certainly an area of concern as they go into the transfer window. Um, and we'll talk a bit about a bit more about that during listener questions. Cause I think a few people, um, asked about that one. Um, but just as you're talking there, I just happened to happen to notice on, on Twitter, um, because we mentioned Michael Mancian that Jeff Lemieux says he's still not back in full training and he's been working off to the side with athletic trainers. So I was, I was going to ask you if, if Michael Mancian was the new Somi now that Somi's off the roster, but it sounds like he is actually still injured and working his way back to fitness. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious to see how Bruce arena rates Michael Mancian. Cause apparently we actually still don't know if he's not a hundred percent or not even in full training at this point, which is kind of surprising to me. It is surprising because normally the team would be putting out, more of an update than, than something from Jeff Lemieux. And I, and I love Jeff, but I, I don't love when he has to be the, the uh, mouthpiece of information uh, every time. Um, and it's just him replying to somebody's tweet too. It's not right, even exactly. it's, <laughs> put yeah, it out it, there. And like I said, it meant, you know, if, if the second highest paid player in your team is out for, uh, you know, almost two months, you'd almost want to wonder why. And I, I'm sure, I think it's been unlisted as like a, plantar fasciitis injury, which is, you know, basically a bruised foot. And, and that sucks. I think I've had it once. Um, and it's obviously not something you can really play soccer with effectively. And, and I, and I get that, but that'd be something that you'd want to, you know, let everyone know, like, you know, Hey, you know, we are still dealing with this. Um, and if you, you knew that a couple months ago before the training window, before the spring window was going to close and you knew that this might be a two month injury and, and a replacement wasn't brought in, I find that to be a problem. Um, and if you're not going to address it, you know, in the first window, you absolutely have to address it in the second window. Oh yeah, I agree hundred percent. And it's, and it's weird that, um, more hasn't been made out of it other than you know, a couple of tweets like that. Cause Michael Manson, like, like you said, was the captain of this team at one point. And, um, obviously the second highest paid player on the roster. Um, and a lot has been expected out of him. Um, but it is interesting that they, you know, are saying he's still, you know, too injured to participate fully in training. So maybe we'll see more minutes for him when, when, when Bruce Arena actually gets a chance to, to see him in full training. I guess that'll be something to, to watch as well. But um, at this point, I think we've seen enough of him to know that the Revolution do need help uh, back there. Um, but before we jump to listener questions, did you, have, did you have any other thoughts on this game you wanted to uh, discuss? No, I, you know, we sort of talked a little bit, you know, pre-show. I think you would have preferred 
to win both of these games. I don't necessarily obviously you want to you want to beat Philadelphia because it's an Eastern Conference opponent, but in the grand scheme of things, four points in a multi-game week at home for where this New England team was, you know, two months ago, um, is is pretty impressive. And the fact that you're within the proverbial uh, striking distance of Toronto for a playoff spot. Um, please do not look at the revolution goal difference number. That tiebreaker is, is terrible um, and is dwarfed only by the abysmally high goal differential for FC Cincinnati uh, or low, depending on how you want to look at the number. Um, you know, I still don't think New England is a, a playoff threat, but the fact that you actually are looking at the Eastern Conference and going, listen, I don't think anyone's out of it yet besides Cincinnati um, is not necessarily a bad thing. The, the way that things go, you know, obviously, you know, eh, Columbus could be doing a little bit better. Chicago, we God knows what Chicago is. Um, Orlando, I think is, is decent. I think, I think the teams that are above the red line in the East now are probably the teams that will be there in some order. Yeah. Um, but it's still not impossible to say that no, you know, Orlando or new England uh, couldn't jump someone in the next couple of months. Yeah. Listen, when, when you look at the, the standings at this point, um, the revolution, obviously only three points out of the playoffs, um, and you know, there's no yeah. games in hand or anything for Toronto when you look at that. Um, yeah. But the concern for me, if I'm looking, if I, you know, if I'm a Revolution fan trying to figure out how the Revolution are going to make the playoffs, um, and you know, you're happy that they're only a few points back at this point. But you look at, you know, who's above them. Um, there's obviously the teams at the top: Philadelphia, DC, Montreal. I think Philadelphia and Montreal are playing above. Um, the rosters, but those teams yeah. are 10 plus points ahead of the revolution. So, you know, how realistic is it that the revolution yeah. can catch those teams? And I'm not sure it's that realistic. And Piotti, when he's back healthy, makes Montreal a different yeah, team. You have to, the one team that I would say, listen, if you're going to catch someone, it's going to be Montreal, but Montreal is doing this right now without Piotti. And exactly. when he comes back, um, yes, you know, you're 10 games behind them with two games in hand. And yes, Montreal has a equally not great goal differential. Um, but that would be the one team where if you're looking at a team where you're going to jump up and try and catch someone, you need someone to drop back to the pack a lot. I think Montreal is that team, particularly longer Piatti is out. Um, Toronto, I'd like to think at some point Toronto is going to get their act together. Um, Toronto right now just defensively is just kind of a mess, which is sort of a strange thing um, to say because normally they're, you know, it's sort of a solid thing where they just, they stop scoring for a little while and that's why they're terrible. Um but yeah, you know, I, I look at the East and just go, you know, I think there are some good teams there that are above the red line. I don't really know if there's any great teams. Um, and that includes, you know, I think maybe DC might be that one team where that'll just, they'll just always be near the top. But I don't know if DC is a great team. Well, the, the one thing people are quick to forget, too, is New York City FC hasn't lost a game since March. <laughs> They've had no, one they've loss all they've season. Also, they've also only like one, like yeah, they, what, they like six they have six wins, wins and they, but they they have six wins, but they also have three games in hand on the on the Revolution. Yeah. Um, but you know, when I'm looking at the standings and I'm thinking playoffs, I see Atlanta United, who's in fourth place. Um, I don't think the Revolution can catch them. I know they're you know with the coaching change, they haven't been as good this year, but they seem to sort of start to figure it out lately. Um, yep. I really don't see them as catchable. Um, you look at the New York Red Bulls, who maybe haven't been as good this year as they were last year, um, but you know at, at seven points ahead of the revolution and i think they're kind of sort of starting to figure things out brother right phillips yep. is coming back from injury i don't think they're catchable um new york city fc you mentioned you know the, the lack of, of of wins uh they still lead the east in points per game i don't think they're catchable yeah. um so to me yeah I, I come down to the same two teams as you toronto because they're, they're three points ahead of the revolution and they've still struggled this year um i think 
the best shot for the revolution is that somehow Toronto still doesn't figure it out. Um, obviously, they're without Bradley and Altidore during the Gold Cup. Um, so there's a chance to make up some ground there. But, um, you know, they had lots of talents on that team last year and couldn't figure it out. So maybe just maybe again this year they don't figure it out. And that's the team the revolution can catch. Other than that, you know, I do think the weakest link um, is Montreal, despite the fact that they're in third place. Um, but, you know, 10 points is a tall task for any that's team. Big, Montreal started off so well. And, and it it is something I don't know if, if, if we said it specifically here, but I always have the mindset of you cannot win a championship in March, but you can damn well lose one. And it's it's very easy to say New England the first two months of the year lost their shot at a title or even a playoff spot because of how bad they were. Even if they weren't, even if we don't perceive New England to be as bad as whatever, how many points per game Cincinnati has, New England was in that realm. Um, and they're still, you know, around, I think just they just broke one point a game um, with the win over Houston. Uh, I think they can get up to, I think we are looking at some of the math the rest of the way. If they get like one and a half points per game, they get up to about 45 points. And I don't think that made the playoffs last year. So, you know, you know, could New England get up in the, you know, into the, you know, mid to low forties for, for the overall standings? Sure. Is that enough to get them into the playoffs? Maybe, but at best you'd be the seventh seed, which means you're probably going to have to go to DC or Atlanta. Who's probably going to smoke you in the first round. So yeah, no, that's my thought exactly. The the best the revolution can hope for is, is seventh place. And I you know, I don't even think that's that realistic just looking at the teams that are above them. Um and then if you get seventh place, you know, you'd you know, anything can happen in a one game playoff. Um, but getting seventh place and going on the road against a team like DC United or Atlanta or you know, even the Red Bulls or New York City FC, yeah. um, the revolution are going to be huge underdogs in that. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah. it would be an accomplishment for them to get seventh place and certainly that would look good on Bruce Arena. Um, but even with all the good feelings of this week, I, I think people shouldn't get too far ahead of themselves and suddenly thinking this team can can actually do something in the playoffs, even if they do yeah. make it. Uh, not to be a downer, but... but no, but I mean, it's just, it's just realistic. This would actually be a team that I think would be far better in a one in, in that first round, that one-game winner-go-home scenario, than they would be over a two-legged series. I think in a two-legged series, the better team's going to win most of the time. In a one-legged match... Anything can sort of happen. We saw a, you know, kind of a mad Columbus team take out Atlanta a couple of years ago, and we thought, whoa, whoa, maybe Atlanta is not ready. And then Atlanta won the whole thing the next year. So, uh, you know, I think this would be a team where, like, we, we, we are much better equipped now to stun someone in the first round than we are to make a deep run in the playoffs. Yeah, and, and I think – my hopes for what this team could do would be a bit more, bit more heightened if it wasn't for Bruce Arena constantly kind of trying to temper hopes as far as what the Revolution are going to do in the summer window, uh, <laughs> where he keeps saying they're going to sign one or two players, if any. Um, so that, I think, also needs to you know kind of temper your excitement until the Revolution show they actually are going to sign somebody. Because I do think if they, you know, and again, I don't want to get into who they should sign yet because they're going to do that later. Um, but I do think if they signed you know the right two players... Um, they could be a team that could get that seventh seed and could be yeah. a team that could pull off an upset. Um, if they go through the summer window and sign nobody, um, I don't think they're going to be a team that get, really gets that seventh seed. And if they do, I would not feel very com- confident at all in their ability to you know, even pull off a shock in a one game. But, you know, again, summer window is just opening. We're going to see what the revolution can do. Um, there's time there. But Bruce Arena has been very much the opposite of Brad Friedel and Mike Burns um, and that he's kind of tempered excitement for what the revolution are going to do. There's no more talk of signing a big DP or anything like that. Um, it's, you know, they might sign one or two players, if any. Uh, so so I think that, too, kind of leads to me not being uh, the most confident in their ability to actually do something, um, you know, come the postseason. Well, I know I've said 
along similar lines that, that Major League Soccer is the literal whose line is it anyway. Listen, the games don't make sense, and the points at the end of the day really don't matter because every week none of this stupid league makes any sense. And in a one-game scenario, that's that's completely true. But over you know 34 games or over a two-legged series, you would like to think maybe even only 90% of the time that, yes, the better team wins. And, um, you know, some of the results that we've seen, um, you know, Colorado beating LAFC 1-0, uh, Minnesota putting a touchdown up on FC Cincinnati, who's just nosedive this year. Um, yeah, you know, week to week, you can never predict anything. But, you know, eventually you you expect that the top of the league in, in the top of each conference to rise to the top. And New England's not there yet to uh, to challenge for that. And I do have one last question for you on, on the game Saturday. Um, the one refereeing controversy that kept coming up in this game was the delay and putting up the flag for the offside. Uh, Bruce Arena was furious over it. Paul Mariner, if you're listening to the broadcast, was furious over it. There was one or two times where a revolution player got the ball and was clearly offside, and the flag went up three or four seconds later for some unknown reason. I don't know if you were paying much attention to the delayed off slide flag that seemed to be causing a lot of uh, annoyance out of yeah, Bruce it, Arena, but did you have any thoughts on what was happening no, on the game I, Saturday? Because <laughs> I couldn't are, get it. No, the, I mean, what happens is that there's, there, there's so many damn iterations of this offside law, I, my head goes spinning sometimes. This particular one of waiting for the other team's guy to like play the ball is probably the one that I hate the most because we all know who's going to get the ball. We all know who's five yards offside. We don't need to wait for him to be in possession and make a move towards goal. Just put the damn flag up. You're, you're not it, in the end. Of the, does it save anything other than five or 10 seconds? No, it doesn't. Um, but the goalkeeper should not be put into a situation where he thinks this guy's offsides by five miles, right? And it has to be prepared and you put a meaningless shot on target, but he, you know, the goalkeeper rolls his ankle or something. Now it's not a meaningless shot. Now your flag is late and someone got hurt and that's on you. Um, and that shouldn't happen. If you're offside and, and there's no chance of advantage or someone else getting to the ball, the flag should go up and there shouldn't be a delay. That should be a common sense thing. But uh, at the highest levels of FIFA, they say, nope, you got to wait for the guy to touch the ball. Uh, I don't like that rule. Um, I probably break that rule on a regular basis when I'm on the sideline in my local uh, youth or adult league games. And no one really puts up much of a, a fuss besides, you know, we're really supposed to touch it. Right. And I says, listen, I'm not chasing 30 yards after you. I'm, I'm staying right here and the flag's going up. Yeah, no, I know I'm with you on that one. And last night in particular, I understand the, the frustration from, from Bruce arena. Cause it was a few that were just bizarre to me. Um, but you're right. You know, that's where, uh, you know, one of these times the flag's not going to go up and, and somebody's going to get hurt from it. And you just envision that happening. And, um, I, I don't really get it. Uh, but with that, we have a lot of listener questions, so let's jump into them. Uh, the first one was from Barbara S., who wanted to know, how do you think the younger players did, and why aren't we seeing Buchanan? I know we talked a little bit about Jones and, and Rennix earlier, but um, overall, how do you think they did in this game, and, and why aren't we seeing more of Buchanan? You know, I would like to see a little bit more of, of Buchanan uh, off the bench. Um, obviously, it's sort of hard. to remember. You're fighting with minutes for Pania, Bunbury, um, Fagundes, um, Juan these are guys who are establishing guys who are going to get minutes. So really you're sort of fighting for minutes off the bench when those guys either don't go on, or maybe there's a situation where we want Buchanan up top instead of maybe, a you know, JF Caicedo. Um, I don't think either of the strikers, Rennix or Caicedo, particularly the starting strikers, particularly did anything outstanding. Um, obviously Penny and Bunbury is, you know, fresh legs against tired legs worked out really, really well. And I hope that maybe you could see, you know, Renix or Buchanan have that sort of impact where maybe they're the guys who are coming off the bench. 
uh, and having that kind of impact uh, late in the game. Um, you know, I, I think it's nice that Renix is getting minutes. I think he had a, a pretty solid uh, under-20 World Cup um, with the U.S. Uh, team there making, I think it was the quarterfinals, and he scored a really uh, good uh, winner, uh, poacher's goal uh, to beat France in that. So, you know, I think uh, you're going to see – you're definitely going to see a lot more of Renix now that he's back and not preparing for the uh, under-20 World Cup. And uh, I hope we do get to see a little bit more of uh, Buchanan coming uh, off the bench because uh, I'm, I'm really excited um, to see him and Jones and, and Rennix. You know, this is sort of the best draft class. I use that phrase loosely, um, you know, crop of, of incoming players. I think that we've really had since probably the year we signed Scotty Caldwell and then drafted. It might have been Farrell we drafted the same year um, where you had so many young players immediately jumping into the squad. Uh, right away and it, it's nice to have two or three or four guys who are uh, rookies you know having an impact yeah I, I agree with that and my thought the first thing I thought when I was reading this question was like because Buchanan hurt because he wasn't in the 18 in this game and I, I kind of understand <laughs> why um, but when you have Dewan Jones playing left back uh, to me that makes even more sense to have Buchanan on the bench as, as an option to get off the bench and add his pace and I, I've liked what we've seen from Buchanan in short minutes so I am surprised we haven't seen more of him yeah. uh, this definitely seems like a game to me where he should have been in the 18 um, you know things worked with, with Pania and Bunbury but if you wanted to make that third sub to add more pace um, you know you'd look to a guy like Buchanan I'm not sure who else on the bench would have been that guy um, at that point no, I don't think there was someone on the been, bench you probably would have been looking at putting uh, either Zahibo or Caldwell yeah um, or going or pushing Jones farther up and going to a three-man back line. There are still options, but yeah, it seems sort of strange to me. Like you're only playing with one center, mid like holding midfielder, but you had both of them on the bench. So I don't know if there was a backup plan to go to a to two-man holding midfield. Um, based on the subs, that would probably look the case. Um, but it would have been nice to have one more pure attacker uh, on the bench, and, and Buchanan certainly would have been on that list. Yeah, because I, I get it if Castillo is your left back and you prefer Jones because of his versatility because he can play as that kind of role or as the yeah. left back, um, then maybe it's redundant to have Buchanan as well. But in, a, in this game, um, it is surprising that Buchanan wasn't on the bench because I, I do think he's been good in his limited minutes. Um, yeah. So hopefully we'll see more of, of, of him going forward. Obviously, Jones is a little bit older, um, so Buchanan has more time to develop. But, you know, again, we've, we've hit on this a lot. If the revolution don't have a USL team and he's not getting minutes there, it's, no. it's, it's tough for his development to not yeah, be an 18. If, if, if you're not going to loan these guys down and let them play minutes, in either Birmingham or Hartford or RIP Rochester, um, you want them, you want them getting minutes somewhere. If it's not with the first team, uh, it should be somewhere else. And, and particularly for Buchanan, because I think we need to find a niche position for him. Like, I'm not sure what type of an attacker Justin Rennix is, but I do know he's good at soccer. I think Buchanan needs to figure out what his best role is. Is he a striker? Is he kind of a two-way player? Is he a winger? I think we need to figure out, based on the game minutes that he's getting, where and what he excels at so that when there is a matchup that the coaching staff likes, we can go, ah, Tejon, get over here. You see that? Go exploit that gap or go exploit that matchup go piss that guy off and steal the ball from him and harass him and everything else. Um, that's something where I think he can be a great player like that, almost like Teal Bunbury is uh, sort of right now. I, I feel like somehow the comparison for me, like, you know, Tejan sort of like Teal, like, you know, a little bit lower uh, on, on the pecking order, but still like that's the type of impact where it's like, I need a guy who needs to harass someone to help the defense. Tejan can do that. Uh, you know, little roles that he can do, find out where he excels at. 
Yeah, I agreed there. And the next question we got was from Eddie, and he wants to know if Edgar Castillo is done forever as a Revs player at this point. He's done forever, but I, I mean, it would not shock me if if the rest of the way, you know, Dewan Jones starts a dozen games to Edgar Castillo six. Um, you know, if if you know Edgar Castillo, you know, Dewan Jones at some point, you know, we always talk about like the rookie wall. Yeah, you know, these are you know guys in the college game. They don't they don't play nearly as many games as they should because the college season is only in the NCAA for the fall. So now you've been training and playing every week. And I know sometimes in the NCAA you're playing two games in a row and things like that. But at some point, I think Dewan Jones is going to need a break. And I think you know Edgar Castillo is the guy. You know, traded a lot to get him. Um, you still have to play him at some point. He can't just be you know, stashed away and cut outright like uh, one Gabriel Somi was uh, not too long ago. Yeah, you're right. The, the rookie wall is absolutely a thing, and the Revolution um, still, for the, the next month at least, have a pretty busy schedule. Um, so I do think we're going to not – we haven't seen the end of Edgar Castillo. Um, you know, what I will say about Edgar Castillo is when that trade was made at the time, I thought it was a good move. Um, and since yeah, then – Yeah, and, and since then, Edgar Castillo has been extremely disappointing, and I feel yeah. like I got a bit of egg on my face for, for my takes on that move and when it listen. first happened. Um, and it's, it's just really disappointing because you look at Edgar Castillo last year, and he was the Colorado Rapids' best player. Um, yeah. He – to be fair, he played more as a wing back than as a fullback. Um, that sure. might have had something to do with it. Um, but he, but also, he I think, yeah, I think he was also the Revs' best player in the first month of the year. You know, I, I think offensively he was doing a lot, but I think defensively there was always right. a weakness there, one on one defending. And you know, as the season went on, the offensive contribution kind of disappeared a little bit or dipped down, and the defensive contribution that was poor, I think, all along all season um, became much more apparent when he wasn't making up mm. for it on the other side of the ball. Um, I don't know if age has caught up to him or, or, or what. Um, I don't think he was ever the best defensive left back, but he was certainly a serviceable one. Um, yeah. But to me, if, it's... If, it's we can, if we can turn Chris Tierney into a almost damn near all-star left back, there's no reason why Edgar Castillo should be struggling this badly. Yeah, exactly. And I... And I you know, was willing to put some of that blame on, on Brad Friedel and the system that he was using. But yeah. um, I don't think Castillo has looked much better under Bruce Arena or Mike Lapper either. Uh, so to me, the, the biggest disappointment player-wise for the Revolution this season has been Edgar Castillo. Um, but with that said, I, I think, like you were saying, the Revolution, um, you know, still have a busy schedule and there'll be more minutes for him down the road. Um, but, you know, absolutely, this, this trade hasn't worked out well for the Revolution. And the, the next question we got was kind of uh, <laughs> taking a hit at, at Brad Friedel and Mike Burns. This was James Downey. <laughs> he wants to know, what do Brad Friedel and Mike Burns think about Somi getting let go and this team going six straight without a loss as they sit on the couch together, unemployed, unshaven, drinking beer, and watching weekday television? <laughs> uh, first of all, weekday, weekday television is not nearly uh, as fun as I remember it. Um, and I've been I've been home a lot more. I work the evenings now, so I'm not asleep during the day like I used to be. Uh God, I you know what? I still feel bad for Mike Burns. And we talked about the after firing special. You should have sacked them all at the same time. Mike Burns didn't need to have that seven minute press conference. Um, I, I don't have a ton of sympathy for either of them. Uh, but I think when when you look at what New England might be poised now to do. I think Mike Burns might be sitting to himself wondering, you know, if I had asked to replace, you know, Jermaine Jones with anyone of reasonable considered talent, um, I might still have a job. And I don't think he ever asked that question. And uh, I think that's the bed that he made and he should lie in it. And 
well, we are we already know the bed that Brad Friedel made. We're going to be referencing it for quite some time, I think, um, as uh, Bruce Arena uh, makes that bed and uh, then puts like a I don't know million dollar sheets on it or something like that and sleeps like a baby every night. Knowing the the smugness of Mike Burns, I can only imagine him sitting back and, and watching the Revolution right now and saying, "I put that roster together, and see now they're playing well. It wasn't that bad of a roster. Everyone blamed me, and now the roster is doing pretty good. Six games unbeaten. I put that together. That's that's what I think Mike Burns is doing. As for Brad Friedel, <laughs> if he if he has that if he does have that thought, and I don't I don't want to put it past you. You know the man better than I do. I I, I met him once. Um, I would say you also hired the coach to, to that that helped you know, coach that roster that you put together and that didn't go all that well. So I don't think that's, that's a good, a good thing. But if, if I, you know, we've said this, if the last thing Mike Burns did was give us this draft class and Carlos Gill, it's not a bad going away present. No, no. I mean, there, there are some pieces there that Mike Burns brought in that the team can build off going forward, <laughs> but but uh, I don't think either of those guys can can feel too good about the job that they did here over the past few years. Uh, next question comes from Mike Kennedy, and we touched on this. What position slash positions are the top priority for upgrading this roster in the summer window? God, you know what? I've been saying pretty much for the last like two years, I feel like holding midfield has been the position to go like DP and I still believe to go DP, but I might wait and do that in January. I, I think you have to go out and, and I would trade for a center back at this point, go within the league, find someone's either backup or an older starter and just be like, listen, we need you here for the next like 18 months. And then afterwards you can do whatever you want next year and a half. We really need you to play like 50 or 60 games for us to help stabilize this mess. Um, and in the meantime, draft a center back as well, or find a young center back to develop um, so that you have a, a true fourth center back next to Jaleel who can learn and, and grow. Um, but yeah, I, I, there's, I, I feel like, because we need, by, by getting a center back, I feel like it solves two problems. It solves your center back problem. And it also solves the problem of getting Andrew Farrell back to right back. So for me, that would be the priority. I would make the big DP signings either... For me, it would be center defensive midfield, then striker. I would make those two moves in the uh, winter. Yeah, you know, I was hoping I could disagree with you, but you said exactly (laughs) where I was going with that. The the only thing I would add there is in the summer window, if the Revolution are to make two signings, I think center back has to be number one. Um, But I think, and I I agree with you, that defensive midfielder, if you're going to make a DP, big DP signing, you know, that's where you have the most influence. But I think if you're going to make two signings this window, it'd be center back and striker, because I think the team now is finally starting to create chances, but the Mm -hmm. finishing is still tremendously lacking, Um, whether it's Caicedo, whether it's, Bunbury, whether it's Aguadello, I think the finishing just hasn't been good enough. But and I do think that, you know, as we talked about before we started uh, this episode, Carles Hill had eight key passes in this game. He created a lot of chances for this team. Um, And I don't and I don't believe he had an assist. No, no. And I and I think that's, you know, that's been a big problem with this team lately. We talked earlier in the season. I think the revolution weren't creating chances, but you know, under Bruce arena and recently they have been creating chances and it's been the finishing that's, that's kind of let them down. So um, right now, if they're going to make the biggest impact this season, I think those would be the, the two moves they'd make. Um, but I'm a hundred percent with you that in the off season, if they can go out there and sign a really influ- influential, you know, central midfielder, defensive midfielder to, to kind of take over this team, um, that would be the move I would make. So I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you there. Um, the next two questions we had are both related to De La Mea. The first one was, 
um, comment in question. Incredible win from the boys. From This is from Alex Welsh. Inc- incredible win from the boys. So happy to see Tony get a good performance with all the changes that Bruce will be sure to make in the summer and subsequent off offseason. Do you think this will be De La Maya's last season with the club? And then the other question we got was from Muhammad Hussein, who wants to know, did Tony earn another start? I think Tony absolutely earned. I, I think we said earlier, We I still think Tony De La Maya is the best center back on this roster. Um, I think as a, a balance of a pure defender and distributor out of the back, I think he's incredibly solid. I think what he needs is a big partner who can go and handle more of the physical aspects. I think Tony is someone who is the release valve out of the back, getting the ball either the holding midfielders or up to the midfielders, I think is great. I think he commands the back line very well. I think he's a tremendous leader. All of those little things I think he does well. Maybe not as great in the air, maybe not the big physical presence you want, but he is a good defender. We need to find him a good partner, uh, which is currently not on this roster, to uh, assist him in the things that he's maybe not as great at and complete the back line as a unit, which has not been a back line unit in some time, I feel like, because half the time we keep putting Andrew Farrell back into the center back position, and every time that happens, I cry a little bit. Um, but I think I think if Anthony DeLamay is your second center back and you have another center back that is somewhere in the um, – I don't want to say the Mancian salary range because it implies that he deserves that salary range at this point, which is debatable, but somewhere in that upper TAM echelon of moves. And that's your back line of Jones, another center back, De La Maya, and Farrell. I'm like, that doesn't seem bad on paper. And we said that when Mancian was signed, and that hasn't panned out. Um, and obviously the injury doesn't help that. But at some point, New England needs to hit on replacing the center backs that they had a few years ago. Uh, took you five years to replace AJ Soares. I think you eventually did that. That's De La Maya. You now need to find a replacement that has the impact that Jose Gonsalves had. Uh, and that's, again, not easy. Um, but that's those are the types of signings that they need to hit on. And New England has struggled with this. Of so You have an international signing. It can't miss. And too often, the international signings the Revolution have are either misses or infield singles or, or singles. They're not the big impacts that the rest of the league has and this team needs yeah and the the only thing i'd add to that on the question of whether this will be his last season with the club i i think that if you were to ask me right now the answer would be yes um but i do think like you said he's earned more starts and there's an opportunity there for him to play well enough to to earn more time here Mm -hmm. but all things considered he's you know he's taken up 400k in salary um, you know, there's, I think if Bruce Arena is a guy picking on defense where he's going to want to bring in his own guys in the off season. Um, so if you ask me right now, I'd say, yeah, it's his last season, but I do think there'll be a chance for him to play more and, and, and earn another opportunity to come back here. Um, so that'll be interesting to watch. And then another guy that we got asked about, uh, from Mike Kennedy is, is Diego on his way out? He seemed disinterested much of the match. I mean, uh, Diego's one of those players where, like like Justin Rennox, I still don't know what his best role is with this team. Last year, he did so well in the holding midfield er, in the in the attacking midfield spot, and we moved him back out to winger or odd striker, and he's not bad at that. But I feel like too often he just doesn't get enough touches to influence the game, and and he needs the ball. Diego's someone who needs the ball. He needs to be one on one. He needs to beat people. He needs to create off of what he does with the ball. Um, he's not someone who's really going to do things off the ball that's going to make you go like, oh my god, Diego's amazing. Um, I don't know what to do with Diego anymore. I, I mean, if he's if he's still here next year, he's going to be an asset to the team because he's good. Um, if you're going to sell him, you should have done that last year uh, when he was coming off of, I think it was a 10-goal, 10-assist type of year. Like, that's when he wanted to sell him. If you're going to use him, 
I think you got to start him. I just don't know where you start him in a lineup. I don't think he makes a great central midfielder next to Gill. Um, I think that means you're going to push him out wide. I would actually wouldn't mind if he sort of did that weird Aguidelo role where it's like, listen, I'm going to be the second striker and just wander everywhere and let Aguidelo play as a number eight next to Gill and sort of figure out those combinations. Um, I think when you start Fagundes as like a outside midfielder, that's sort of his least effective position. Yeah, and, and I think when you do start him as an outside midfielder, he's better on the left, which is Pania's best best position. Right. And we talked about that before, um, which mm-hmm. is the other problem. Um, that's my issue with Diego. I, there's no doubt in my mind he's a very talented soccer player. We've seen it. Um, I'm, I'm just not sure where his best position is, and I'm not sure you know where he fits in the Revolution system um, and Bruce Arena system. I, I, I agree with you that you know kind of as that second striker, if he had a run out there, that might work. But then you know maybe he's getting in Carly's heels way. Um, that, that's the tough part. He needs he needs touches yeah. to be an effective player. You're 100 percent right on that. Uh, so it's, it's it's hard to say. And I also agree with you that his value is high, or at least higher, as of the end of last season. Yep. Um, than it will be after this season. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the Revolution do with Diego. Um, I think he's got one more option year next year, and I assume they pick it up and, you know, either trade him or you know keep him. Um, so I don't think he's going to be going anywhere for free, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, Davis the Billion also mentioned Diego and thought Diego had a bad attitude for getting subbed. He had a couple other comments as well. Um, talked about De La Maya getting the goal after his uncle passed away. Um, and, you know, Matt Turner made great saves, but it's inconsistent. Pena was a good super sub. Um, and then asks Bruce Arena a genius with man man is Bruce Arena a genius with man management? Um, the one thing I want to say quickly on the Diego comment is, you know, I feel two different ways when I see a player get angry about being subbed. I think it's good that a player wants to stay on the field, um, but yeah, I think they do need to be more understanding and not impact the other players and the team in that situation. I don't know what, what your thoughts are about that. No, um, I, yeah, I mean, like I think there's a difference between getting subbed out at the hour mark and being mad about it than, say, Edgar Castillo getting yanked at the 30-minute mark because he was bad and being upset about it. Like, if you're having a bad game and you got to get yanked, you're going to get yanked. Like, it's going to happen. It's not the end of the world. Starting pitchers get yanked. they got to go out and do it a week later. That, that should be the attitude that you have. That's the way that I normally view it. Um, being upset as a player who gets substituted, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing as long as it gets settled after the game or the first day in training. Like, you know, hey, we really don't want to see that, but, you know, keep – be motivated by it. Um, you know, I, I think, the, you know, the issue for I, that I had specifically for Diego Fagundes in this game was if you're deploying a diamond midfield and he's one of those central midfielders and you want to use him as like a shuttler passer with Aguidelo, I sort of felt like that was an odd combination. I would have much rather have seen Scott Caldwell in that role. And then now you've got your two holding midfielders already on the field one holding midfielder on the bench, and then you've got Fagundes, Teal, and Pania off the bench. And that already there just solves a whole bunch of our problems that we were talking about earlier with where's Tejan Buchanan, the extra attacker on the bench. So um, I think Diego, we're still sort of figuring out roles that he can and can't do. And for a guy who's been in the league for almost a decade, that feels very strange to me. Yeah, no, I'm with you on all that. And the, the other question here was, is Bruce Arena a genius with, with man management? <laughs> What's your thoughts on that one? I mean, he's certain he's not not a genius. Um, he's, he's definitely not. He's he's definitely proven every little button that he pushes right now um, seems to work with this team. And I think it was very very smart of the crafts 
uh, and or Brian Bilello to make the decision to bring in Bruce and sack everyone right before the Gold Cup break. Because it basically gave Bruce, I think, a very key second little mini preseason to figure out what he had. And those couple of weeks, he can look at this roster and just go, you know what? I don't think this sucks. It's not great. We're going to do a lot of improvements. But it doesn't suck. And and the ability to very quickly turn it around with Mike Lapper now into Bruce Arena and just go, listen, we have a roster that we know that should be able to compete week in and week out. Maybe not win all the time, but at the very least, compete and not lose by five goals. And the fact that Bruce has come in very quickly and established – you know, his style and his rotations, and and it's been re- seemingly received well in the locker room, and we've seen the results on the field. Um, you know, I think that this is exactly what New England needed on the field, and I think as the off-seasons and years build up with Bruce and the back office working together, you're going to see what he can do with his roster-building talents as well. And you, you kind of touched on it, but the, another question we got was from Joe about Bruce Arena, and he asked, now that the Revolution are back in the hunt, how does Arena balance competing rotation and analyzing the whole roster? I wouldn't change anything. Whatever, whatever he's doing right now, I don't think you should look at all at the standings for the rest of the year. If you sneak into the playoffs, great. I would just be building everything to next year. Don't look at the standings. Don't think about the playoffs. There are larger goals New England has to fix. Sneaking into the playoffs this year should not be one of those goals. I think if it happens, you take it, you get the extra game, you have fun with it, go nuts. Um, But I think right now Bruce Arena should be spending most of his time building for 2020 and figuring out exactly who's staying, who's going, where I need to spend, where I need to maybe find a couple of value veterans from the league to fill out the roster. You know, maybe you find another holding midfield type. Um... And, and you cut bait with a Zahibo or a Caicedo or and both uh, and, and figure out what your balances are with, with the roster, um, where you can improve from a value standpoint, where you can improve from just a overall talent standpoint with the big money. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. And I think Bruce Arena has done a decent job of actually you know, in a short time of getting players minutes and kind of when guys haven't been playing well, um, you know, giving other guys a chance, but also not being too quick to, to pull the trigger on somebody. Um, so I don't think he needs to change what he's been doing. Um, and I, you know, it, whether or not the revolution are in the hunt, I, I agree what, what he's been doing this season. It's all about building for next year, because as we talked about before, um, you know, even if the revolution make the playoffs, I think realistically their, their chances aren't great of actually doing anything. Um, and next up, we have a couple questions about striker. Uh, Val Damas94, I think, is trying to uh, get us to, to, to buy a new nickname for Kaiseido. He, he says, is JF Clunky Sado a good striker? He looks like he doesn't know how to walk, but he can hold the ball so well. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that one's going to stick. No, I don't. I, I don't like the think, effort. <laughs> I like, I, listen, in, he, he does run a little funny, doesn't he? He sure does. He sure does. Okay, it's, I, I think one of the things New England has to figure out is how they want to use their strikers. If you're going to use Caicedo as the holdup guy, then you need to find a partner. To me, that would be an Agudelo, a Teal, or a Diego to work off of him on either side. Let let JFC2, Caicedo2, sit, sit in the middle, cause all the trouble, and let the wings open up and use that speed. Let everyone go nuts. Um. If you're going to use Caicedo as a traditional striker, okay, that still seems like it's a perfectly fine idea. 
Um, but who are you partnering with? How is the balancing going to work? Do you want him going forward with the ball? How do you get him the ball while he's running at goal so that he can shoot? Um, New England always is great at getting the ball to their striker with its back to goal 40 yards away, not so much right in top of the box. And that's something that um, has been a longstanding problem. And I, I think JF2 could, could be that guy to maybe solve that problem. Um, but at the same time, I also feel like I'm not sure I want him operating as a lone striker all the time. I feel like he might be someone who's best with a partner up top to work off of and, and who that partner is and what side of the field they like to work on is something they're going to have to figure out. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what to make of, of Juan Caicedo still, um, whether or not he's a good striker, you know, there's, there's moments in the game where I'm watching and I'm wondering, you know, mm-hmm. what, what he's actually doing, um, where has running is really awkward. He's not fast. Um, you know, he's, he looks like a big physical guy, but to me, I think he, he goes down too easily at times. Um, I don't think he uses his body as well as he could, but then he does have some good holdup play. Um, yeah. you know, he, he did a great job on that, the game winning goal. Um, I, I think at that point of the game, I was particularly frustrated and wondering you know, what, what he was actually offering to the team. And then he does that. So I, I don't really know whether or not he's a good striker. I can't, can't make up my mind. Every time I think I'm ready to write him off, I see him do something great that really helps the team out. Um, but you know, I, I mostly agree with your analysis on, on him and, um, I, I don't like him as a lone striker. Uh, but you know, the revolution usually play with a lone striker. So I'm not really sure yeah, what that and, means. And, really. sort of, and it's also like, he's been with the team exactly what, like two months now. Yeah. I mean, given the injuries and everything and he right, hasn't, and I'm like, I, I, it doesn't even, he hasn't even played 10 games yet. I don't think with the team has he, or 10 starts. Yeah. I, I, I feel like he's probably played 10 games, but not 10 starts. I'm trying not to not 10 pull. starts. I th- I'm looking yeah. He's right. got, he's got six starts and 14 appearances. So eight sub appearances. So, yeah, I, I think as that number gets up to like, 15 starts or, or, you know, and 30 games played uh, towards the end of the year or 20 and 30, whatever, whatever the number, however the math works out. Um, I know that the numbers are off uh, as those numbers go up, like three goals in, in two assists in 600 ish, 700 ish minutes um, is pretty good. All things considered, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if he can make that happen, I, I think once we hit 15 starts, I'll be more confident in whatever my opinion of him is. Um, you know, if at the end of the year, he's got 2000 minutes played and say 12 goals, eight assists, we're going to complain that much. No one would complain at that. I don't, I don't think I'd be complaining about that. It doesn't ha- it can look as awkward as it wants to be. I don't always need New England to play beautiful soccer. I like it when they do. It looks really fun. I love it when New England's on the break with four guys running at the goalkeeper. Uh, and like two center backs going, oh God, this is going to suck. Um, but I don't need them to do that all the time. I don't care if you know he kicks one in from Rennick's range in the World Cup. I don't care if that's how we score every goal. Uh, I just want us to score. I just want us to have moments where we have a good sequence that leads to a good scoring chance. And too often, the good sequence never leads to the good scoring chance. We don't get to the part where we shoot the ball, or we do, and it goes you know 50 yards away. Um, you know, if JF Caicedo is going to be a poacher, he's going to be a poacher. I don't care how he poaches. I don't care if he's with a partner up top or by himself. As long as he's getting those chances and as long as he's finding the score sheet consistently, um, he's going to be on the field, I think. Yeah. I, I, the, my only thought there is I still want to see more from him as far as finishing goes to prove that he can be that poacher. But I completely agree yeah. with you otherwise. Um, on the on a similar note, uh, Randy LH asked, um, he said he loved the fight that the team showed to come back and win, but he also said, I can't help but think it would have been easier with a truly world class striker. What do you put the odds at that arena will bring one in this coming window? We touched on that briefly, but what, what do you think the odds mm-hmm. that arena actually brings a world class striker in this summer window? 
I, I actually like your analysis that if the number one need right now is center back, regardless if that's a trade or an international signing or what have you, I think if you are looking at this roster and going, you know what, we want to make a playoff push. Let's go for it. I think you make the striker signing now, and then you hold your big center midfield or center holding midfield spot for the DM in the winter, and you prepare that signing now. You start figuring out who you want to target for that now. But if there's a striker that you like on the international market, you have a chance to bring them in on like a two and a half year deal. I don't see why you don't do it. Yeah, I I agree. I'm not confident it's going to happen though. If I were to actually place odds on it happening, I'd say maybe 25% um, as far as a world-class striker goes. I think, you know, I think if the revolution were really trying to sign somebody this window, um, a world-class striker that they would have needed to start earlier um, and that we probably would have heard some sort of mumblings or rumors about it at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that, you know, in the offseason that that'll be a key priority. And I do think they may say an A striker this summer, but a, a world-class striker, I think, um, more likely than not that they won't. Um, with that said, that would be key for them, as I've already talked about. Um, and then the, the last two questions we have both relate to Pania. The first one is from Teal is the greatest of all time. He wants to know if Pania looks fitter uh, because he thought he looked fitter. Uh, I'll take that one quickly. Um, I thought Pania had a really good game off the bench. Um, but when you're coming in in the 60th minute, it's hard for me to judge that you're actually fitter. Uh, I think you just see him go 90 minutes to tell that. Um, and I do think there were games earlier in the season where he came off the bench and looked really good too. Um, so I don't know if you do anything from his appearance. But for me, it's, it's very hard to say after you know 30 minutes if Pania looks fitter. Yeah, I still think Pania's still, you know, best when he's when he's a starter um, because I think that he, he is that effective as a player and that game-changing. Um, but if you're able to bring him off the bench consistently and he's this good, um, I don't have a problem with him sort of, you know, rotating in and out, whether that's trading out with Diego or Juan or whoever it is. Um, and, and like I said, like, you know, New England, you know, they should be able to rotate plenty of guys over the next, you know, few months. There's no reason not to, um, even if you're making a playoff push, like, you know, the, the, the schedule is going to be a little clustered right now coming out of the gold cup break. Um, there is no more open cup. Sadly, I was kind of bummed. There's no, no more open cup for New England. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, there's no reason why we can't, you know, over the next couple of weeks figure out, you know, you know, Hey, do we really want, you know, a, a Tam winger? of, of Pania's level coming off the bench all the time, or do we really want him starting and playing 75 minutes most weeks? And I think the answer at the end of the day is going to be, we really want him starting. If he's able to do that, you know, three times a month, he should be doing that. Yeah. And kind of, you touched on it already. The, the last question we have is from Cameron Young and he wants to know if Bruce should keep Pania and Taylor super subs or reinsert them back into the starting lineup. And if keeping them as subs, who starts over them? Um, I think you touched on that a bit. Um, the one thing I will say here is that, you know, if those two guys are fit, I think they're still your best two options at, at left wing and at striker. Um, my, ideally, I think Teal Bunbury is a super sub, but I don't think the Revolution have someone that's better than him to start unless you know Juan Caicedo proves to be that guy. But that again, if they sign someone in the summer window, I think Teal Bunbury is a fantastic super sub. And you talked about how he can play, you know, be a sub that as the defense can be a sub that yeah. uses his pace to add to the offense. Um, I think that's an ideal role for him. Um, but you know, I also agree with you that Pania is ideally a starter when he's fit. Um, so hopefully we see that going forward. And with all the soccer that is going on in the world right now, uh, do you have any shout outs before we wrap up the show? Um, let's, I believe uh, we have Jamaica confirmed into the semifinals of the gold cup, a one nil win over Panama on a uh, pretty unfortunate handball. They are late. Uh, K 
kids, I want to remind you, if you watch the uh, handball call on Panama, stop jumping in the air with your arms over your head. Nothing good happens in soccer when your arm is above your shoulder. I don't want to keep saying this, yet I keep having to see handballs at all levels of soccer caused by this. Um, USA Curacao starts uh, fairly shortly. I'm trying to find the starting lineup for that. They did announce it. Um, yeah, Zard is a starting, in case you were wondering. No, 8.30 start time. I, 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 I love the Gold Cup. I love Curacao in, in the quarters. I love Haiti in the uh, semifinals. Um, With Zach Harris. USA lineup. Oh, God, what is this? Yeah. Um, Stefan, Nick Lima, Aaron Long, Tim Ream, Walker Zimmerman, Beasley, no, uh, Bradley Pulisic, Boyd, McKinney, Oriola, and Zardes. They have Boyd as a central midfielder. I bet that's a 4-4-2. That's got to be a 4-4-2. If it's not a 4-4-2, it's some kind of weird 4-2-3-1 with Bradley and McKinney as holding mids and Pulisic in the middle. And, God, Giassi Zardes is going to score another weird goal again today, isn't he? I mean, just blast out his head, right? Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah just put it near him. It'll just bounce off him. Just, my God, he, Jossie's artist scores goals like me, but makes them look so much more cooler than the ways I did them. <laughs> and I just one time scored a goal while, like, semi-unconscious. So, you know. Well, when you talk about the gold cup, it's very exciting for, you know, Revolution fans to see Zach Haravu making it in the semifinals yeah, with, with Haiti. Two starts, subbing in late, closing out Canada. I love it. I love it so much. And, and of course, we, we have to mention that the U.S. Women's World Cup team um, in the semifinals versus yes. England on Tuesday at 3 o'clock. So lots of exciting soccer to watch uh, this week. And it's, it's crazy that we have the African Cup of Nations, Copa America, Gold Cup, Women's World Cup all going on at the same time. Why do we and spread these things all at the same time? Why don't we spread this out so we can watch more games at once? Who schedules this nonsense? Looking at you, FIFA. You suck at this. <laughs> oh, I'm with you. And I had also forgotten the fact that the Confederations Cup was canceled so that if the U.S. wins the Gold Cup, it doesn't matter as far as qualifying for that because it doesn't exist anymore. Instead, there is going to be some sort of crazy 2014 Club World Cup. Cup and the Women's World Cup, I think on four days this week, on top of well, and and it, it was crazy the amount of like gold cup. I mean, not gold cup. Copa America games that were starting at like three o'clock in the afternoon. Like, why? Why you're in you're in our time zone? Why are you starting these games <laughs> at these terrible times? But. And I can't imagine the weather. I mean, God, I forget who it was. I saw the tweet where it was like a hundred and whatever degrees in France, like Fahrenheit, and it like never gets this hot ever in Europe. And it's like the, one of the biggest heat waves in like I think it was like a decade or something like that. And people looking at, like, every other team and just going, like, oh, my God, we never train in this. And meanwhile, the U.S. women are like, this is NWSL in, like, late May. Like, this is, like, normal. What are you talking about? This is this is perfectly fine. That good old um, Texas heat. <laughs> and then you just look at some of the results and how they grind out some of these games. And you just have to wonder where, like, listen, maybe they're just, just out conditioning everyone else. They don't even need to worry about you know, beating everyone 5-0, they can just be like, we'll just run you into the ground because we play in this every day. No, I think there's absolutely something to that. And, I mean, it helps that the U.S. has so much talent anyways, yeah. but the the fitness and being used to that weather, I think, absolutely is an advantage yeah. for the U.S. Because I, I, I'm going to be honest, I, I didn't love the way the U.S. played in either knockout game. I, I thought Spain... Um, was very lively, and the U.S. was lucky to get both those penalties. They were they were both penalties, um, and obviously the win uh, against France, uh, holding on there late. But I, I feel like the U.S. should have put both those games away uh, much much earlier than they did. Um, 
And, uh, you know, they, they've been doing very well in the set plays, but they need need to score more from open play, particularly earlier in the, in the middle of games when they have control and uh, make make that game control show itself on the scoreboard. Yeah, I need to see some more of uh, Alex Morgan scoring. <laughs> I haven't seen much that, that way. I need Alex Morgan to score. She, does, she looks like she's playing hurt. I don't know if she that's does. true, but. Yeah, well, because the Gold Cup game's coming up, we should wrap it up. But can you tell people where they can find your Gold Cup coverage and your Revolution coverage, and also you can find on my, usual, my usually belated, like you know, two p.m. recaps for the uh, Gold Cup uh, at uh, thebentmusket.com, uh, at thebentmusket, and at Jay Katniss, uh four three. Uh, it was a big week in uh, Connecticut uh, sports history. We're going back to the Big East. We're coming for you, Providence. We're coming for you. <laughs> And Kemba Walker going to the Celtics. That's yes. exciting news. Is that official? Did that happen yet? Yeah, uh, it's been it's all but official from, it's all but from official. what you're saying out there, yeah. <laughs> I want to remind everyone the last time you signed someone from the great University of Connecticut Huskies, his name was Ray Allen, and anything is possible. Just saying. This is one of the few times where I'll consider Connecticut part of New England, but don't get used to it. <laughs> 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 right. And uh, you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue and, of course, follow us at Revolution Recap. Um, with that, uh, thanks again for listening. And we'll be, be back next week after uh, hopefully some exciting fireworks in Colorado on the 4th. Oh, yeah. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.